Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones exteriones equal to... Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. My name is Joel Dahlqvist Kullborg. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance, 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% crystals. Don't even know what that means but we'll get back to it (laughs) (laughs) because you don't know about treating yourself well joel oh okay that was your chakras you know your chakras oh okay i thought i was immediately uh, associating that with crystal meth and i thought that's going to be an interesting well-being pitch but let's get back to that where in the world are you brian (laughs) i'm high on the 29th floor of my building um in london where in the world are you joel I'm out in the cabin where I spent most of the dissertation writing and I just got into the habit of being here. So I'm still here going to Copenhagen tomorrow. You're riding the good wave of freedom? Yes. Uh, independence and impartiality are the, the words of the day. <laughs> independence from your dissertation and impartial about what's coming next? Yeah, no, I am impartial because I am back in the investment arbitration grind, investment arbitration reporter grind, that right. is. Right my uh, occasional employer but now more and more i'm working with and for i reporter which i love and also makes me proud to say that i reporter sponsors the third season of the arbitration station Uh, it's an online service focused on international investment law which for more than 10 years has offered up to the minute coverage of new arbitrations recent decisions and notable policy developments and asterisk as we started to record i actually saw that the bill versus canada case hugely publicized uh, and well followed nafta case was just or the, uh, the news was released on ia reporter that the final award is out and we can expect an an analysis on ia reporter pretty soon just case in point because i it is great actually it's an interesting case and there was a dissenting opinion <laughs> uh, n- yeah, not not. I don't know if there was one in this one, but in the partial award on jurisdiction, there was a very uh, good, I think, dissenting opinion. So it's going to be interesting to see how the final award uh, deals with some of the interesting issues. It seems, actually, just reading from my reporter, that uh, the investor got just a small fraction of what they claimed, but they got a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. So, interesting interesting anyhow i i reporters team of expert analysts uh, yours truly included offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential so to find out why the words leading law firms universities and government agencies subscribe to ia reporter visit iareporter.com that's right. An IA Reporter article circulated our office today, the PL Holdings v. Poland case that you wrote about, actually. Oh, really? Um, this Tell me more. <laughs> uh, someone asked if they could, if they published 
Um, and this is actually a good point to bring up if they published um, Swedish court decisions in English. And I said, actually, the SEC has the arbitration portal where they do that, but they have not yet translated this one. But then I referred them to your iReporter analysis um, to look into the oh. interworkings of the decision. You're making our case for us. Exactly. <laughs> I think this is, I've been thinking about this a little bit. And sometimes I actually... Uh, convince Luke Peterson, who runs iReporter, to let me translate Swedish decisions. But the problem is that they are usually pretty long, so you have to put in a lot of hours right. if you want to translate it properly. But I think there's, because uh, I, I found this out the hard way doing my dissertation when I looked at comparatively at domestic jurisdictions, that there's a lot of interesting, crucial decisions in domestic courts out there in languages other than English. Yes which sometimes get translated by like a law firm who wants to do it for their client or something and then it gets spread around but there's it might be um, a business model out there somewhere for somebody who speaks nine languages and <laughs> doesn't already work for a law firm <laughs> but i think that's what the sec is trying to do and i think there should be similar initiatives in different jurisdictions like there was a paris uh, court d'appel decision that had to do with the uh, rosoro mining case um, oh, yeah. That set it aside on specific grounds that were actually relevant um, to how to interpret how breaches were analyzed and how damages were calculated. Um, and that's definitely relevant if you're going to be citing the Rosero case. You need to know that um, not only that it was set aside, but why it was set aside. And yeah, and the French judgments are good in that respect because they tend to be about a page and a half. So you right. can translate them pretty <laughs> easily. The reasoning isn't exactly a U.S. Supreme Court style, typically. That's true. Speaking of France, well, I mean, our transitions today are so on point. Um, <laughs> we are the media sponsors of the third ICC European Conference. Uh, Within parentheses, one of one the media of. sponsors. We should probably say we're not the media sponsor, no? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they get all of their media sponsorships through the, the humble beginnings of the podcast. <laughs> no, we are one of the media sponsors for the third ICC European Conference, which is going to take place on April 1st of this year um, in Paris. It is part of, it's a kickoff event for Paris Arbitration Week. So you can actually go to the third ICC European conference and follow it up with the Paris Arbitration Week opening cocktail. That's at seven o'clock that evening. If you are only interested in the cocktail, these tickets are sold separately. If you want to sign up, sign up at iccwbo.org. Um, and the full conference program is up and ready to peruse. I think we talked about it yes last episode, so we don't need to go over it again, um, the specific uh, topics. But... The next episode of our podcast will, in an effort to promote the conference, we'll talk about one of the panel discussions that will be at the conference. So stay tuned for next episode for that. That's nice. We haven't mentioned on air, have we, that the week after that we'll be in D.C., no. presumably recording the podcast out of your uh, one of your home countries. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Capitals. Yeah, the 13th annual um, Eurus conference is it annual or is it biannual we should know this it's annual okay you have something in front of you that's official yes <laughs> do you hear me typing yeah exactly so no <laughs> <laughs> no but i it sounds familiar that it's annual I, I was just thinking that it might be biannual but 13th annual investment treaty arbitration Eurus conference in dc on april 8th at the washington plaza hotel and we will debate each other on stage and then have our performance reviewed by people who are way more um, 
experienced than we are. That's going to be scary and probably make for good popcorn worthy entertainment if you happen to be in Washington, D.C. That's true. We are in the fourth session. So if you guys want to sign up, we'll be on the fourth session. Um, should costs go with cause in investment treaty arbitration? And we have, did you even look at our panel? We have Nicole Silver, John Fellas, Lucinda Lowe, and Wayne. Oh, no. And Lucinda Lowe. There. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did look at that. And then I stopped looking at it and realized that we are maybe... Uh, and for a swim in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, we're going to bring targets for our backs. That'll be great. Uh, what are we talking about today, though, on this episode of the podcast? Today we have the drum roll, please, the introduction of the Arbitration Station Book Club. Oh, yeah. Hosted by Joel Dahlquist, Goldbody. Yes, we will we'll do this uh, from time to time, not as uh, a re- uh, it's semi-regular feature basically when I have the time to read up on arbitration classics and we'll start off light by Jan Paulson's arbitration without privity, which I thought was one of the most cited articles in investment treaty practice. It turns out it's not, which I'll get back to in the segment, but that's the first substantive topic of today. And then it's Brian Kotick, uh, PhD. <laughs> Talking about proportion- the principle of proportionality in arbitration, mostly in investor state arbitration, um, it has never been under the substantive standards and substantive protections. It hasn't really been a pronounced element of finding a treaty breach, but I will argue that it actually has been. Oh, interesting. I'm looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. And then for happy fun time, the reason why I talked about crystals and not crystal math, <laughs> that we will be talking about well-being and maintaining a balanced lifestyle while still being um, in arbitration lawyer or academic um kind of things to look out for things to help things to keep you awake um <laughs> anything that's gonna kind of and we are we are excited. so different you and i when it comes to topics like this we are both very um diligent when it comes to well-being i hate that word but <laughs> there's no better word for it but we approach it in fundamentally different way so at least that's my impression so i'm looking forward to having a little discussion on this with yes. you Yes. No, I, this is definitely a Los Angeles Brian coming out. And, yeah, exactly. And, and this is about... walk, walking in the woods, Joel coming out as well. So it's it's Adderall versus long walks by Snooze. the woods. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it'll be an interesting discussion because we'll talk about the vices. We're not just going to talk about which yoga retreats to go to. We'll talk about kind of the vices that lawyers find themselves in. Um, and actually, I just thought about this when I walked past our HR department on the way up to this recording studio, is that it's actually the wellness, it's the year of wellness and well-being at Winston. So um, it's it's a hot topic on someone's mind. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good. You didn't even know about that hook. No, I didn't. <laughs> Great. So well, let's start with the inaugural episode of the Arbitration Station Book Club. So much like any other book club in which you read uh, non-arbitration literature, the plan here with the Arbitration Station Book Club is to read classics, classics of the field, books that you either say that you've read, but you (laughs) lie about it, or that you have read at some point, but you've mostly forgotten about it. So it's going to be sort of a primer on things that you're expected to know as an arbitration lawyer. Mm -hmm. Which brings me to the question, which are the classics 
of the field as sort of a preface to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I had Damien Charlatan, who works with me at IA Reporter and is a brilliant scholar uh, at Cambridge University, who does a lot of interesting data-driven research. I had him crunch the numbers on uh, doctrine, scholarly writing cited in investment treaty arbitral awards. And I know that he would want me to introduce a bunch of caveats because this is not something that he would publish and you know it's not complete and he doesn't have all the data and whatnot. But it works perfectly fine for our purposes. I basically have a list of the most cited works in investment treaty arbitration. Do you dare take a guess, Brian? <laughs> Wait, so he has like a bot that like has perused all of the investment arbitration awards and and found the most cited works? Yeah, I don't think that's the way he would put it. But yeah, okay. that's... But yeah, are we using AI at any point? Uh, no, okay. uh, I don't think it's something that, that teaches itself. Basically, okay. he has collected for years a lot of data and he's done the same with ICJ and the IRN, United States Claims Tribunal and other things. And he just mines the data for for relevant points and then he okay. uh, does comparative research on it but yes basically it's articles it's a robot. or judgments or anything no it's not judgments here i think ah. if i if i'm guessing that damon is also looking into that but for our purposes this is just uh, articles and books and it turns out to give away some of the surprise that it's mostly books which is boring because i was hoping it would be articles right okay well if it's books then i'll definitely start with is it investment arbitration or commercial arbitration investment arbitration only because okay. there are commercial cases you can't really read. You obviously extent. have Schroyer's commentary to the Exit Convention. Yeah, oh, fuck, that's the most cited one. You got it right, the first try. <laughs> I mean, I've written a little thing in my day, Joel. Okay, <laughs> here we go. I'm on a roll, I'm on a roll. Um, Dolzer and Schroyer. That's number three. Oh. Jesus. This is, I, I used to love this quizzing part of the show because you never actually get it right. But now you're already ahead of me. And I did not prepare for this. I just know when I'm like <laughs> about to write something, where do I go? <clears throat> what about Margaret Stevens, her book on investment arbitration? Yes, with Dolter, actually. With Dolter. That, that's one you're thinking of. Yeah, Margareta, is that her name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. She's semi-Danish or half-Danish. Yeah. Uh, Margrethe. Okay. Yes, it's also in the top 10. Bilateral investment treaties from 1995. Exactly. Okay. Hmm. Then it's... Um, number the, two. Uh, number two is actually... It seems to be an article in French by James Crawford. What? About state responsibility. Yeah. From 2003. Interesting. That, yeah. Unless I'm misreading it, but that, I mean, I'm reading this off an Excel sheet, but that oh, okay. seems to be. And some other, I mean, it's mostly like handbooks. In addition to the, uh, the Schroer and Dolzer book, it's uh, Brownlee's Principles of International Law. Yeah, definitely. And the McLaughlin Shore Weininger book, the people we talked to in hey. ICA, it's also on the top 10. And uh, what else? Jan Paulson's Denial of Justice is also on the top 10. And Zachary Douglas's International Law of Investment. Yeah, definitely. so that's basically the. And it seems that the the first article is in place number twelve, and that is an article written by Lalive, the law firm, what? about. And it's called the first World Bank arbitration: Holiday Inns versus Morocco. Some legal problems in the British Yearbook of International Law in 1980. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so I think many of these are old works. I think that's the. The common, oh, for obvious reasons, because many of the awards are old as well. So the older the text, 
the, the easier it is to get more citations. Not a lot of like and recent. also the more general the language is, I think, is the key. Because when you're right, just when you're drafting and you're trying to get like those first couple sentences out on indirect expropriation means da da, and it's like those definitely come from um, a Stevens and Dolzer book. Yeah, exactly. And that is, by the way, why I had assumed that today's topic, the the text we're reading for this. Um, book club episode uh, would be in the top at least top 20 because in arbitration without privity john paulson for the first time explained how consent works in investment arbitration mm-hmm. so that's the way i usually see it like in a footnote explaining you know the uh, asymmetrical consent with the state offering in a treaty and the investor accepting without the two having a direct relationship that is the the privity aspect of, of the title right but it's became, on. I mean, it became relevant recently when there was the discussion about perfected consent, which wasn't he on the tribunal? For, no, it was Christer Sutherland, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. This I recognize. Um, I just saw this. I didn't read it. But before then, I don't know if it's that. I mean, it's a very fundamental piece of work, but I don't know if it's that, if it would come up that often to be the most cited. Yeah, and I think it's mostly in, in other scholarly works that you use it, like, you know, in a... The first time this was explained, see John Paulson, blah, 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 it doesn't give you a lot. And typically you don't have to do that at this stage of of arbitral jurisprudence development. You don't have to explain the basic features of of consent, typically. It's more like more general uh, scholarly writing when you have to explain something quickly. But I will still make the case because I've read the article, unlike you, I assume, at least recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, with with uh, I will argue that this is actually an important article, nevertheless, even though I should say for the record, it's on place 110 <laughs> of the list of most cited works. Oh, great. Let me check how many. Oh, my God. It's almost a thousand. 913 articles is in this, uh, the data that Damien has. That's thorough. Oh, anyway. So uh, it's a rather short text. It's not the uh, war and peace of arbitration reading. That would be the exit commentary, I guess, which we will right. not read <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. This is more uh, catcher in the rye or uh, breakfast at Tiffany's. I'll, just say, I, I'll take that. Yeah, short and sweet, a classic <laughs> that everyone should have read. And the reason for that is that this article kind of broke new ground it's maybe not as revolutionary today if you read it you have to read it with your historical glasses on which i will try to do mm-hmm. it was published in uh, the exit review the foreign investment law journal published by oup in 1995 and as i said john paulson explains how consent to investment arbitration works and we have to remember with our, our historical classes that in 1995, there had only been a handful of treaty cases, mostly under ICSID. And the non-ICSID ones were not known at the time, but they've been uncovered by a certain sponsor of ours much later on in right. time. So when he wrote this, uh, arbitration is more or less something that parties agree to in contracts. That's sort of the the background and the context in which we have to read the text, I think. The timing is is relevant. It is also relevant to note who Jon Paulson is. That is a practitioner with a long scholarly track record. And he was also involved in some of these early treaty cases, which is relevant because he begins the article with a description of the map of arbitration, 
based on contracts. And then he writes the following. Explorers have set out to discover a new territory for international arbitration. They have already landed on a few islands and they have prepared maps showing a continent beyond. And one of these islands is SPP versus Egypt, in which the claimant was represented by, among others, Jan Paulsen. Mm-hmm. And here I have to add a sidebar about self-citation, I think, which we might do in a separate Happy Fun Time segment, because it was part of an Ojimid thread not long ago. Uh, and it was being discussed primarily in academic context, like to what extent is it actually appropriate to cite yourself as support for a position that you're arguing in your main text? Uh, I don't hate it. Yeah, I think it's a good topic. I, I don't want to go into it because I have so much to say about it and it's not really <coughs> relevant here. And this, what Paulson does here is a different thing. He doesn't cite himself, but he cites a case in which he was counsel. And... Uh, this is an interesting thing, I think. When we wrote an article together, you and I, in the same journal, actually, in the Exit Review, mm-hmm. and we touched upon a case which you had been involved in. I think you mentioned this in an asterisk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or am I misremembering? Exactly. I think that is a good rule of thumb, actually, but one which is rarely observed. <laughs> right. I, th- I think, uh, given how many problems we have a double heading and so on, in this field, I think it's good practice that if you discuss a case that you've worked on yourself, that should be disclosed in the article. You agree? Yes. I, well, you were the one that br- that brought it up, because oh, really? Yeah, you were like, we should do this, not because I thought we shouldn't do this, but I just didn't I'd think about it. Oh, okay, good on me. I didn't actually remember that. Yeah, I thought that was you just being diligent. That's good, uh, but it also shows. I think the the greater point that people rarely think about this, right. and and neither did John Paulson because he doesn't mention in the article that he was I think even lead counsel for this claimant in the case that he describes as discovering a new territory for international arbitration. It might be relevant information to know that the author was actually the architect behind the case, <laughs> more or less. Be that as it may. Before going into the case, the SPP case, Paulson also mentions the, at that time, very recently concluded NAFTA and the ECT as further examples of the landscape changing. And this uh, change landscape is something that we today take for granted, i.e. an investor can bring a case against the state based on international law without having a specific agreement directly with that state. And we spoke about this in that uh, Taylor St. John interview that I keep referring back to, how the introduction of advanced consent on behalf of states in investment treaties was really revolutionary uh, development, which was a large, largely the result of exit work to that effect. So Jan Paulson did not come up with this thing by any means, but he explains it. And I think it's safe to say that this is the first time on a, on a a well-publicized forum that somebody actually took the time to explain what this is as it was happening, more or less. Right. Which is why it's interesting to know and to have read. He explains, uh, first, advanced consent in investment legislation, which was envisioned by the exit drafters. And in 1995, there had been a few such cases. And then he turns to cases based on bits, mentioning the case that he was involved in and also AAPL versus Sri Lanka, the first treaty case at exit, where the tribunal accepted jurisdiction under the UK-Sri Lanka bit, 
partly it must be pointed out because the respondent state did not challenge jurisdiction. But this case, being the first investment treaty arbitration award, is a gold mine in its own right. And we might actually return to it in the book club if we expand the book club to covering also classic awards that you should read. But uh, Paulson then notes that although the UK Sri Lanka bits in the AAPL Sri Lanka case was very clear in its reference to ICSID, every BIT is different. And quote, it would be exceedingly difficult to prepare an inventory of all BITs. And today, of course, with modern inventions such as, you know, the internet, (laughs) we have interns. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Doctoral students. We have several such inventories. Damien being exhibit A, who can just in a few minutes pull up a list of the 900 most cited sources in investment arbitration. But uh, here, it's just a few years ago that investors first even started to think in terms of bringing cases against states based on treaties. So there are hundreds of treaties out there that nobody really knows anything about in 1995, including whether and if so, they actually exist, I think. Mm -hmm. So Paulson ventures into what is probably one of the first, if not the first, mini-survey of investment treaties and their arbitration clauses. And uh, the book you mentioned, Margaret Stevens and Dolzer, it's from the same year. I don't know which one came out first, but that book is basically the same thing. They go over investment treaties and compare them. And both of these works, including then Paulson's article, they make observations that sound almost quaint today but were novel at the time. So he he goes through Soviet Union and Polish treaties, mentioning that they are strangely worded and seemingly limited. And he mentions that this, this thing, uncitral arbitration, might also be available. And some clauses make it a condition that investors respect a cooling off period and all these things that he was basically the first to mention, which we know now that there's a whole business working with. And he also, you know, talks about different ways of defining investment, citing a bunch of treaties. Mm-hmm. So after many pages of comparing all these treaties, his main conclusion is this. You must look at the individual bit. Some treaties allow for what he calls arbitration without privity, i.e. for an investor to bring a direct claim without a prior agreement with the state, whereas other treaties contain different caveats on the arbitrability of these cases. So why do we care about this? It sounds a bit obvious for us, uh, but at the time, this was actually rather revolutionary. The famous international law professor Sornaraja, a Sri Lankan professor in Singapore, I think, who, by the way, is still a vocal critic of investment law, he expressed in his first edition of uh, the monograph, The International Law on Foreign Investment in 1994, He expressed what seems to have been the consensus at the time that an arbitration clause in a treaty only provides for direct access to arbitration if there is also a contract between the investor and the state. And this assumption, Paulson argues, is just that, an assumption. And then Paulson shows quite convincingly that most treaties are in fact pretty clear in their wording and there is a case to be made that you don't need a contract, you can just rely on the treaty and bring an arbitration not uh, news to us, I no, think. No, not yet, no. But at the time it was. It, it feels a bit strange now to say, and I guess there was no real good legal reason, but basically this argument that Paulson makes opened up the floodgate that 
now pays for your expensive London apartment. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Jan. And if I may quote him again, he writes towards the end, doubtless there are persons still with us who cannot <laughs> shake, shake off a mindset crystallized in the 1970s that re <laughs> recoils when faced with a prospect that a state might have to account for its actions before an international tribunal. Such ideologues, if given the power to write bits as they <laughs> fancy, would doubtless have chartered the road to arbitration through the eye of the thinnest possible needle. But that is not what has happened. With most bits, the investor is actually standing on a broad highway. Mm -hmm. This is the uh, pro-arbitration gospel, basically. And we should reflect upon this statement and the time in history when it was written, because this was the time of the Washington Consensus, the glory days of market, liberal, market liberalism and, and capitalism generally. The wall had just come down and you know, foreign investment was given an almost religious significance in making the world a better place. I think right. 10 years earlier, this conclusion that he, he wrote um, and the argument that there are hundreds of treaties out there who seem to give investors procedural protection would have been extremely controversial. But now in 1995, they fit pretty well with the general mood and in world affairs as they were then. I think that might have changed now, but maybe we shouldn't <laughs> go into the backlash against globalization generally. <laughs> I want to quote this elegant guy uh, one final time before we wrap up the first book club segment. And it's a rather long quote, so please bear with me. Okay. It's Paulson. It is, of course, too early to tell whether this new field of international arbitration will fundamentally alter practice or remain a marginal feature. What is already clear, however, is that it is not a subgenre of an existing discipline. It is dramatically different from anything previously known in the international sphere. It could presage an epochal extension of a compulsory arbitral jurisdiction over states at the behest of private litigants who wish to rely on governmental undertakings, even though they have not contracted for a forum. The aim here is not to take anything away from states but to help ensure that foreigners have faith in their promises. Mm. The objective is not arbitration that favors the foreigner, but one that simply favors neutrality. Mm. You can really see a lot of exactly. the, yeah, exactly. It is classic and it, it contains a lot of truths that I think were emphasized here and expressed maybe for the first time, which have since become classic. So it's kind of the King James Bible in many ways of investment arbitration as we know it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, but it was kind of like the, I think now uh, the the pro-investment arbitration gospel or the apocrypha, I guess we could say, has to be a little <laughs> bit more like nuanced in what we're saying, because you can't just say that it's like the foreigner is, you know, able to invest. It, it's like the foreign, there's so much critique that has come out since then saying like a foreigner can clearly go in and, and exhaust local remedies and find, there is a remedy. So is it access to justice necessarily or is the foreigner completely left exposed if they don't have this treaty in place well there has been a lot of critique that that's not the case so 
Um, although it's a good starting point, I think now there's have to be like second and third tier arguments to kind of define. Yeah, I mean, history has evolved, as yeah. you say. And this is, I mean, as I said, this is 1995. It's very much like the, basically the starting point of investment arbitration. And then a lot has happened, especially recently. I think we can even say that between 1995 and like 2010, 2015, something, that was the heyday of investment arbitration. It was just more protection, more rule of law, more arbitration. Right. This is the, what we need in order for the world economy to, to prosper. And then now, as we know, and we discussed time and time again on the podcast things are maybe a bit more nuanced and people even within the business or the industry may have differing views actually yeah because the states are like i have to pay what and oh, <laughs> well you agreed to that well i don't have to always Where? agree to that <laughs> <laughs> exactly i can rewrite the rules yeah if i wrote, I the, wrote the rules so i will now change the rules it's like a bully on the playground it's like wait, yeah exactly i don't like this game um, but I like I like this article actually, and I like this type of scholarship generally, partly because that's what I want to do myself, which basically just consists of walking behind practice, sweeping up various separate and uh, fragmented developments, and explaining what is really going on, just synthesizing mm -hmm. legal developments. It's not coming up with some fancy new understanding. It's basically just taking bits and pieces of what is already happening and putting it into one. Uh, coherent model and explaining okay but if we think about this this way it means that we can bring hundreds of these cases because there's a bunch of treaties and they all seem to say the same thing right good on you Jan Paulson good on you thanks you for paving the way for my career that is at the risk of dissolving as we speak <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's not on him that's no, on no, no, no. other things and other people <laughs> well good good inaugural book club episode yeah, I think next time we'll do something meteor if I have the time. Uh, once I've defended the dissertation, I'll sit down and read an actual monograph, maybe. Maybe I'm promising too much now, but <laughs> let's, let's aim for that, and then we'll end up with like the shortest possible, like a book review or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll get one of our researchers on that one. Hey, yeah. Dimitri. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's uh, move on to a more traditional segment. We will be talking about proportionality in the second segment, um, and it's really come up mostly in investment arbitration, mostly because it has to do with how a government and how investment arbitration is kind of injecting itself into the regulatory space of a state. Um, and I think what it comes down to is the fact that, you know, ISDS tribunals have these like broadly phrased international standards that set out in very similar terms, like you were talking about in many investment treaties. Um, they have these these provisions and these protections that tribunals then try to concretize, expand, or restrict their meaning based on an interpretation that kind of affects the, or is affected by these facts and circumstances of a specific case, but then increasingly try to define the majority of states, this like standard of good governance and this, like you said, rule of law that can be enforceable by foreign investors. Um, so in some sense it can be argued and has been argued that the there's this type of judicial review of state action that um investment arbitration has now occupied this space that they're they become the judicial review of administrative action on a global scale um in a ways that have implications for much wider public interest and public policies and for the legitimacy and methodological justifiability for the for the tribunals themselves so are you now already setting the stage for making the case in Washington that yes. costs should not follow the events because this is yes. public adjudication? Oh, sneaky. Yes. 
Sowing the seeds. So everyone, please comment. Give me all of your arguments and answers and tell Joel that he's wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. But the critique to that, Joel, to your point, um, is that because there's this open-ended language, um, tribunals have this broad highway, or as Jan Paulson called it, to kind of abridge the roles of states as regulators to protect some public interest, whether it be for environmental protection, human rights, emergency, or protecting property rights, or economic interests. So it's almost as if we are infringing on the state's regulatory space. So there's this kickback that has come back and saying, okay, well, investment arbitration is now the police in the streets of what um, regulatory action is considered lawful or unlawful as per the terms of the BITs and the treaties. Um, but now the states are coming back and saying, well, wait a second, we should be able to do exactly what we are able to do as sovereign. So where do we find the happy medium? Enter proportionality test. Um, so there's in a lot of jurisprudence that's been developed and, in, and it's come up in different um, manifestations how these two balance should balance each other out. So you have the protection of the investor, you have this private interest protection, and then the protection of the sovereign in its ability to govern its own sovereignty. So this test that has come out, and I'm going to give you four elements of what this test has um, in general been said to include. The first one is the legitimate purpose. So you will look to the legitimate purpose of the act. Um, the problem there is that usually a government's not going to say that we're going to take this measure because we're trying to rob everyone of their money. So you usually have a legitimate purpose that has been explained via the legislation or a judicial act or an administrative act by the executive. Um, so unless it says that they're they have manifestly corrupt reasons for the private benefit of a friend of theirs, um, it's, the state will usually um, satisfy the first element of the proportionality test. <clears throat> the second one is suitability. So there must be a causal relationship between the measure and its object. I cannot say I'm going to expropriate your investment to build a road here because um, my wife is pregnant on the other side of town. And there needs to be a causal relationship between the measure and the object of that measure. The built road actually has to go over your property and not somewhere else. Exactly. So there, again, you're going to have just like the first element of the legitimate purpose. Usually the government's not going to be so negligent to draft a piece of legislation or to take an executive act that would not relate to the action that they're trying to do. So then the third element that has come up is this element of necessity. And it's not necessarily necessity in the sense of an exception of a BIT. Um, it basically has, you could say, two steps. The first being that there is a not a less restrictive measure. Um, and secondly, that the measure is equally effective um, to achieve the stated goal. So you cannot say, well, you know, you can't take a measure that is extreme, that there exists an alternative measure that would be less restrictive on the investor, but achieve the same goal, because then you're going to, you know, that's where we're going to find the happy medium. And then the final element is what we would call, or what Dimitri has termed it as proportionality stricto sensu, which is basically balancing the affected right and the interest of the investor with the importance of the government purpose. Um, this kind of has this reminds me of like a First Amendment argument in the United States where you say the restriction on your First Amendment rights versus the alleged um, legitimate interest of the of the group. 
So these are the four elements that have kind of been um, teased out of what you would need to prove to have, or what the tribunal will use to analyze whether one, it will fall on one side or the other of the issue. And this is regardless of uh, the substantive standard of international law under which you're arguing your case. It's more like a general test that can come in exactly. here and there. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't apply this test on every standard, but I would just say if you're like going to talk about proportionality generally, I would discuss these elements. Um, but then you gave me a good segue into what I'm going to talk about now, which is basically um, in each specific standard of protection and in investment arbitration, kind of how it, how it comes up. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Joel. It's like we've done this before. <clears throat> um, so the por- proportionality and in indirect expropriation, I would say, is the biggest one. Um, and it has come up a lot recently because you're going to deal with a state action that is not necessarily arising to a physical taking, but has decreased the value of an investment or has effects equivalent to an expropriation. And in order to do that, you're going to need to assess some tribunals would argue the legitimate purpose of the act itself versus the effect. Of course, we have the sole effects doctrine, so there's there's two sides of that coin. But some tribunals have discussed um, a portion proportionality um, element in an indirect expropriation claim. Um, so if we look to just how the TechMed tribunal put it, they say, as a matter of general international law, a non-discriminatory regulation for a public purpose which is enacted in accordance with the due process and which affects inter alios, a foreign investor or investment, is not deemed expropriatory and compensable unless specific commitments had been given by the regulating government to then putative foreign investor contemplating investment that the government would refrain from such regulation. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, in the definition of an indirect expropriation, that's a bit confusing, and this is where tribunals have kind of split. Um, you either say that if you look at the legitimate purpose and you look to how the act was implemented, whether it was in the due process of law and non-discriminatory, does that fall outside of, does that mean that the action falls outside of the scope of expropriation under the definition of the BIT? Or would you say that the proportionality fits in with the definition of expropriation under the BIT, and therefore you're only discussing whether it's lawful or unlawful. Um, I kind of went on a tangent there, but I think it's important to, to de- when I talk about the proportionality, I'm not going to make a determination on what I think is the correct conclusion in that. I'm just going to talk about how proportionality comes in to assess whether an act can be a, a taking, whether it becomes an expropriation or not. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> So, excuse me. So in TechMed, as we know, that was that the claimant committed certain licensing infringements and operating in hazardous waste landfill in Mexico, and community groups became opposed to the operation and existence of the landfill. And when TechMed tried to renew its license, the state refused to renew the license, citing certain infringements. So the tribunal there followed a two-step analysis. It first determined whether the, needed to determine whether the measure itself was sufficiently intense in order for a non-compensable regulation to turn into a compensable indirect expropriation. And this defend, this depended on a temporal factor, so whether it was non-permanent, and a substantive one, whether it would lead to the const- complete destruction of the property's value. Um, and since the landfill facility cannot be used for a different purpose and cannot be sold because of the existing contamination, the effect of non-renewal amounted to an expropriation. 
But the tribunal considered the effects of the non-renewal of the operating license only as one factor among the others distinguishing between regulation, a bona fide regulation, and an indirect expropriation. Um, and then the reason for that approach was that the principle that the state's exercise of sovereign powers within the framework of its police power asterisk may cause economic damage to those subject to its powers as administrative without entitling them to any compensation whatsoever is undisputable. Okay, then they found out the test for expropriation, which is where we get to the proportionality. The arbitral tribunal will consider in order to determine if they are to be characterized as expropriatory, whether such actions or measures are proportional to the public interest presumably protected thereby and to the protection legally granted to investments, taking into account that the significance of such impact has a key role upon deciding the proportionality. There must be a reasonable relationship of proportionality between the charge or weight imposed to the foreign investor and the aim sought to be realized by any expropriatory measure. So you see we have all of the elements that I teased out initially, these four elements, but just kind of wrapped up into a nice clean sentence yeah and this was an early case as well it's pretty ballsy to in introduce this test which basically at that point in time i guess existed primarily in other spheres of international law where proportionality is a, especially in in europe we love proportionality but taking it into an arbitral award like this that was ballsy <clears throat> Definitely, but it paved the way. And I think what it what it just kind of reflected is that a tribunal had to grapple with this idea where, well, we can't just say, okay, well, they've taken this action and it's decreased the value of their investment. And we don't really know where that line is to be drawn. It's, it can't be a certain percentage. Okay, they lost 50% and now it's expropriation. Where do we draw the line? Well, we need to consider basically a totality of the circumstances and weigh them against each other. And that's effectively a proportionality argument. You asked the risked the police power doctrine. Yeah, because that's, I don't think people should be citing police powers because police powers is kind of an antiquated uh, principle of like um, regulating against famine. Um, you're talking about the, you know, the regulatory space. So you're talking about the state's right to regulate, not necessarily it's police powers. Police powers is kind of like a, a connotation that I think the tech med tribunal kind of overstated. Yeah, it's a cool connotation, though. It's a cool phrase. <laughs> yeah. I do see, like, blue and red lights in my mind when I... Yeah, when I yeah. That. I see Robocop for some reason. <laughs> could you... Oh, God, could you imagine? Maybe that's the future of investment arbitration. It's just one big Robocop. Yeah, and the Robocop power <laughs> doctrine. <laughs> um, so I won't... This is already running long, so I'm not going to go into... But basically, the LG and E and Argentina cases discuss the same issue, but the countermeasure or the counter interest there was the fact that um, Argentina was facing emergency due to its um, recession. And there were a lot of cases um, that came out of that um, emergency, quote unquote emergency, um, and the pacification of the dollar denominated debts in those cases. Um, and the tribunal endorsed the approach taken by te TechMed and incorporating its reasoning on a proportionality or a balancing test between distinguishing between legitimate non-compensable regulation and compensable indirect expropriation. Um, <clears throat> the tribunal suggested that BITs ordinarily do not exclude a host state's power to regulate in the public interest, but at the same time, in ex exceptional cases, even generally applicable regulations in the public interest require compensation if the measure is obviously disproportionate. So now you have proportionality determining whether 
a measure can be deter- can be deemed expropriatory or not, which I thought was um, another ballsy um, position taken by a tribunal. <laughs> then if we look to the FET, there you kind of see something that is a little bit more cut and dry in the sense that proportionality definitely has to come in this, in this sense um, because you have the FAT standard interpreted by different tribunals as encompassing stability, predictability of the legal framework, consistency in the host state's decisions, and protection of the investor's confidence or their legitimate expectations. You even have procedural due process, denial of justice, transparency, reasonableness, all that <laughs> is basically saying, let's have a balancing test. Yeah, if you dumb it down, the FAT standard is basically a test of proportionality. Yeah. <laughs> in, often, at least. Exactly, which is why we're talking about this, because we, we say FET, but then at the end of the day, and you have all of these grounds, and a lot of investors bring claims on these separate grounds, um, but then they end up arguing the same thing, and they don't really know why, and then they realize, well, we're just arguing a proportionality argument <laughs> Yeah. Um, at the end of the day. So the tribunal in Occidental the Ecuador, um, the largest publicly known ICSID award in history, the $1.77 billion. Um, before you go? I mean, why is that? Safe? Not an ICSID case. Not an ICSID case, right. Russia's okay. not an ICSID state. So the tribunal there held fair and equitable treatment has on several occasions been interpreted to import an obligation of proportionality. However, they looked at previous decisions, they looked at LG&E, they looked at Azurex, and they looked at TechMed, refer to proportionality in the context of expropriation, but not FET. Um, the tribunal in Occidental looked to MTD v. Chile um, and said that Judge Schwebel's statement that, that sa- stated that the FET encompasses such fundamental standards as good faith, due process, non-discrimination, and proportionality. Um, but still, the MTZ tribunal decided not to go into a proportionality analysis, but Occidental did. Um, they put out a four-step proportionality analysis. The first one was the tribunal first accepted, without much elaboration, that the termination of contract pursued the legitimate aims of deterrence and good governance. So there you have the legitimate aim. The second one was the suitability test that the tribunal also accepted the suitability of Ecuador's measure, the termination, to achieve the objective that it claimed. The third one looked to alternatives to termination, and it disagreed with Ecuador's argument that its only alternative to caducidad, or the cancellation of the mining rights in that case, was simply to do nothing, finding that there were a number of other alternatives, such as imposing a payment of a transfer fee. so yeah, they found that there were, there were alternatives to this um, cancellation of the rights. And finally, the tribunal turned to proportionality, um, devoting several additional pages why the pr- principle of proportionality stricto sensu had not been complied with. Um, the tribunal looked at the background of the decree and came to the following conclusion. It said that it can be accepted that some punishment or other step may well have been justified or at least very least defensible. The options available to the respondent have been explored above. The tribunal does not necessarily disagree with the reasoning that the respondent could justifiably have wished to re-emphasize the importance of adherence to its regulatory regime, but the overriding principle of proportionality requires that any such administrative goal must be balanced against the claimant's own interest and against the true nature and effect of the conduct being censored. 
The tribunal finds that the price paid by the claimants, i.e. the total loss of an investment worth many hundreds of millions of dollars, was out, out of proportion to the wrongdoing alleged against Occidental, and similarly out of proportion to the importance and effectiveness of the, quote, deterrence message that the respondent might have wished to send. So there you have it. And then I'll quickly sum up this segment with discussing or just saying that the proportionality has leaked into languages language of the BIT of BITs, MITs, and FTAs. You have the US Korea FTA, the New Zealand China FTA, CETA even talks about it. Um, so I think that's kind of the new wave of um, bringing predictability to investment arbitration and to the states that are consenting to investment arbitration is that they want their regulatory space to be a bit more protected, so they're going to have proportionality be more than just an implied um, um, analysis for a tribunal to consider, but more of an, you know, an express ground that they have to apply and analyze in order to determine whether a breach existed or not. Jan Paulson, Anno 1995, does not approve. Does not approve of, of proportionality? <laughs> no, of the development of states clawing back regulatory space. Yeah. Yeah, and I because that goes to the second like classic view of arbitration, investment arbitration is that you've consented to this, you've taken an act, and you have to pay for the act regardless of what the act does. Yeah, which assumes that the scope of illegality of the act is clearly defined somewhere, which has not been the case traditionally. Correct. Correct. Well, it doesn't really. That's if you're looking to expropriation, you could argue that it doesn't have to be illegal. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Illegally is ac- generally actually I'm I I'm hoisted by my own petard, is that a expression? <laughs> I'm gonna make a t shirt out of that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Because I keep telling students never to use the word illegal when talking about arbitration. It's confusing. Yeah. It could be not in conformity with the law or it, especially with expropriation. Just stay away from yeah. deeming things illegal. It can be confusing. But So proportionality, whether you like it or not, it's here to stay. (laughs) Whether you'll see it expressly or impliedly will be a time for another day. Oh, nice little uh, cliche poem to round it off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So Joel, have you ever thought when you're super stressed, when you're writing your dissertation that you're like, you know what? I just have to go into a quiet room, fold my legs, put my arms in an ohm position, and just sit and focus on my breathing for 10 minutes before I go back to my paper? I think this good question, because it really uh, puts the spotlight on the differences in the kind of work (laughs) you and I do. When I'm stressed writing my dissertation the last thing i need is to just be alone in a dark room because that's basically what i'm doing for most (laughs) of the the working day anyway (laughs) but i see your point yeah no I've, i've been this is off topic basically but i've been tinkering with the idea of trying yoga i've never felt that i could be a yoga person and i sort of despised the people of your tribe i.e californians for for doing yoga then uh, there's there's um 
a friend of ours at the SEC is a yoga freak, and she's had a yoga class at the IC, at the SEC. And when I was there in some other business a few months ago, and they had their like the final session of the year, and all the people who had taken her yoga class like once a week at the SEC with her thanked her, and it seemed to be such a nice thing. They, you know, they they all they were glowing from the yoga that she taught them, and I was like, ah, this might be something for me actually to expand my own horizons a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why yoga is a good thing and what the, like, the fundamentals of yoga are, but we're not, we're not here to talk about yoga. Let me, <laughs> let me, expand, let me expand the discussion and then, then I'll come back to why yoga is important. The first thing is we're expected in private practice and maybe when you're actually in the throes of your dissertation and, and, and throes of writing an expert opinion or even an article, to be completely focused, high-functioning, infallible, correct for 12 hours a day, and then we're expected to dip down and be able to fall asleep and get good, clean eight hours of sleep before we wake up in the morning. To rise up again, be infallible, high-energy, high-functioning, and attentive. And to do that for 30 years of our life. Okay, so how do you get up and how do you get down in the shortest period of time? And that's where we kind of come to this well-being discussion, where you can get up in many ways naturally, and also in many ways unnaturally, and then the same way you can come down. So we can start with the ups, or we can start with the downs. We can, let's start with the downs first. Um, because when I started law school, they told me, they said, um, most of you will turn to alcohol. Yeah. And then you, and I was like, well, why? I mean, besides that it's fun, why would you turn to alcohol? Well. It's a way for your brain to like completely shut off or you shut it off <laughs> by pouring <laughs> it enough into it that it that it shuts down. You de-stress immediately on the taste of a refreshing beer. Um, it's a way for you to, to shut down. Some people use harder drugs. Some people need to use Klonopin or Xanax or, or sleeping pills or anything that's going to make them go to sleep when you've been at a high energy job for so long because... You can't just go home and just turn your brain off, right? Yeah, this is this is why rock stars die by cocaine overdose at the age of twenty-seven. Basically, it's like when when you've been functioning in such a high energy environment for a long time, you can't just push a button and turn everything off. No, because you go home. Let's say you work till midnight. It's not like you go home and then you hit the pillow like a robot and turn off. You're gonna need to do something to calm you down. And so some people turn to food. Unfortunately, that has glycerides in it it's going to give you more energy than you want so you drink i guess because it's a depressant um and it's not necessarily healthy so you can do something like meditation or yoga um, and that's where kind of that comes in because in those certain things uh, those certain activities the focus is on your breathing the focus is to take everything out of the outside world and all you're doing is focusing on the breathing in and your inhale and your exhale yeah that the way you pitch it now it sounds very appealing well that's how actually i put myself to sleep sometimes my grandpa taught me that oh really he said because you know my grandpa went through a lot of trauma in his upbringing so he had trouble falling asleep and so he would exhale but you, you know when you naturally exhale your stomach goes in but you focus on exhaling and expanding your stomach and then inhaling and contracting your stomach because it's counterintuitive and so your brain will consistently have to focus on your breathing and by default not focus on the stressful day at work you had oh it's a good like shorthand trick Mm -hmm. 
good shortcut. It's a, I mean, we can take this in any of a number of directions, but I think it's interesting because I haven't thought about any of this until basically the last year and a half or something when I started working on the dissertation full time and realized what, why people sort of hit the wall and be, become you know, depressive when they're finishing the research projects. Mm-hmm. And I had to figure out ways to deal with it. And I, this, it's a cultural difference. We make jokes about it. But it's also, I think, uh, partly true that in different cultures, you have more or less, you have different uh, ways of discussing this. And some things are sort of taboo. And I think you come from one which is in one end of the scale, basically, where it's just, it's a zero-sum game. You even phrased it yourself now ups and downs and you can like artificially create ups and downs and it's all about creating balance and it's like part of discussion in society and pop culture all the time how you can arrive at those whereas some other cultures and and sweden is probably part of that family as well you don't really talk about it traditionally it's just like do your work shut up go to sleep (laughs) and everything will sort itself out and i'm from that uh um tradition if we use that word in a, in a wide sense and i had to uh, figure out a way and i this is it's absolutely not my intention to sound preachy because i know everyone's different but for me what worked pretty well in the last couple of years where i spent the majority of my time on trying to finish this big research project was uh, just patterns routines basically mm-hmm. so kind of the opposite of of smart tricks to get yourself up or down just like establishing blocks of things that you do more or less the same time every day so exercise food and sleep are basically i guess the three major elements of of Mm well-being and the regularity and predictability in all of these three things for me has been more important than the actual content of the routines Uh so i don't sleep i don't sleep more than six six and a half hours which i think is probably too little too little if you asked an actual expert Mm -hmm. but they are more or less the same hours every night that's when i work and feel mm-hmm. the best from like midnight to 6 30 ish and during work intensive periods i try not to alter that pattern too too dramatically during the weekends so even if i go out i try to be at home so that i'm asleep or at least in bed by 2 a.m and up by like eight ish right. so as not not to disturb that rhythm and it's been the same for exercise i've worked out more or less every day the last year or so and still i'm very far from a beach body as the workout in question is often like an hour's walk and not your high energy crossfit routine Mm -hmm. so it hasn't turned me into like somebody who would be shirtless on a magazine cover but it's kept me sane just because i've done it every day more or less the same hour of the day as well just okay now time to just drop everything and go for a walk yeah and it and same with food as well where i'm less rigid because you have to be a bit more creative and have a little bit of fun but i found that certain consistent alterations have made me feel so much better significantly less meat like a glass of wine with every dinner but not that much more etc etc mm-hmm. and it, i realized this makes me sound like a health freak which is absolutely not the case i still do snooze and smoke the occasional cigar and consume a gallon of black coffee per day but the key for me is to get all these like physical aspects of life uh, into functioning at a decent level on autopilot just by virtue of the regularity and the predictability yeah. so that you can keep your mind focused on all the various mental explosions that tend to come up when you're working well, I right. think that is the, the end biggest, of sermon. No, well, I think the 
that that is the biggest problem that we have in private practice is that yeah exactly i realize that that you don't have that luxury of like working out at the same hour every day or cooking every meal yourself that that you have when you're like a a lonely Mm -hmm. academic so what do you do (laughs) well i've started working out more in the morning because the second you say i'll do it at lunch i'll do it at 3 p.m i'll do it after work never happens because um, something always comes up, something gets moved. You can't plan your days at all. So to work out in the morning is easiest. Okay, then um, what if you work till 2 a.m.? Are you going to work out in the morning? Probably not. But I think what you're saying about just being, you know, doing something that's a bit active for yourself and that's taking, you know, your hour break at lunch to go for a walk instead of sitting in your breakout room and, and eating with your colleagues. I think that's key. Getting sun, um, anything that's going to give you vitamin D or endorphins is something that's going to definitely bring you sanity. I know when I, especially in the Swedish winter time, that was crucial for me to kind of make time for myself. And no one is going to fault you for taking 30 minutes out of your day or 45 minutes out of your day to go and, you know, lift a weight or two, as long as you do it at a, at a time where everyone knows you're out of the office and they can reach you by phone if need be. Granted, this is for more senior people, because when you're a junior, you cannot. Um, but I think that it is definitely good to get your heart rate up every now and then. Eating is the first thing, eating and drinking, like you said, is the first thing that's going to go because I know when I'm like a, you know, a closeted obese person, it's like I... The second I feel like I'm getting screwed over at work, I want to like grab the most carbo-loaded thing in the world to make myself feel better. Um, and that only makes you feel worse um, because if you're not healthy in your diet, then your whole like mindset is off and you have like a food coma afterwards and you can't work. Then you take coffee to counterbalance the, the food tiredness and then you're just in this like swing of, of energy levels that's just going to like make you crash at the end of the day. Um, can we, can we, sorry, you go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to talk about like wh- how we, how to come up, how to get energized. How to oh, yeah. Up. Okay, that's good. I'm interested in your philosophy uh, when it concerns performance enhancing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, you, if you're in the US um, where opioids are running rampant <laughs> and your cocaine dealer is a block away, then I think that people there are... Um, really falling victim to the easy quick fix of Adderall um, and even some people are doing cocaine at work um, or like micro dosing and stuff like that that people have started doing because it picks you up and there's no hangover um, and you're able to stay focused throughout the day if you've had three nights three hours of sleep um, the night before it scares the living shit out of me just the thought of opening that door yeah so your heart will hurt literally um it's definitely not sustainable and um the second that you come off it or you know you you get mood swings as well you won't be able to you'll be able to focus on a document but you won't be able to um, hold a conversation you'll be in your own mind you won't be able to talk to your client properly you definitely can't do it at a hearing you know what i mean it's yeah it's it's, a certain very specific and and uh, limited tasks like finishing a submission or something like that or a dissertation right. i guess but even then we're not uh, clearly we're not advocating it without a prescription but no don't do drugs people. <laughs> <laughs> obviously um and then then and then there's coffee as well um coffee i i, I have my name is brian i'm addicted to caffeine um <laughs> but i try to limit myself to three cups a day i don't drink it after six because it doesn't help me sleep or you know it actually works against sleep um how do you stay up 
Well, I, I, as I said, I, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in all these different minor steps. For me, mm-hmm. it's just been a general fine. But that's because I've had a job that's allowed me to do it. So I haven't really been exposed to the, the more complicated conditions that I, th- I think is uh, the case for most people with the actual profession. I just tried. I want to create some sort of general thing going, but that that assumes that you don't have kids or colleagues or other things. So I I don't know what's going to happen. But co- coffee I like and enjoy, but I've never been the kind of person who like has to have coffee. Sometimes I forget to drink coffee and mm-hmm. for for days and it doesn't happen. And then I drink nine cups of coffee and it doesn't <laughs> make a whole lot of difference. I think. But I, then that that touches on something that I think we should close on basically, mm-hmm. and and that is we have to address the type A thing when it comes to wellness in our field. Mm-hmm. So far, we, we've talked generically about feeling well, regardless of where you work. But we happen to work in an environment where all the senior role models talk about marathons and they compare like as if it's a competition how well they are. And not just uh, work-wise, but it's also a competition to be as fit and healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously in itself not healthy and something that annoys me. And I, I refuse as a matter of principle to talk about cross-country skiing, marathon running, or any other healthy activity when at a conference or with some other colleague. Because that the kind of uh, image that we are creating by having conversations like that, I think, are themselves just fundamentally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, when you said don't trust a lawyer without glasses... <laughs> I would say don't trust a lawyer who's extremely in shape. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you're fit and you... tan, it's like it doesn't work out. It just doesn't add up. Yeah, and so I think we need, just need to have like a balanced method of, you know, and I think what you're saying right with having having routine and having, you know, you get into work, you give yourself 30 minutes to look at your news items and then after 30 minutes you get into work, you have a similar type of meal for lunch and then at three o'clock you take a walk around the block, you know what I mean? That type of regularity. Yeah, but there's a big catch that I haven't mentioned and that is that I've, I've found this to work very well because I've been finishing my dissertation and I've been stationary for eight months or something. Mm-hmm. In our business we travel generally mm-hmm. so much and every time you move you are automatically thrown out of your routine True. and you have to start from scratch again. You have to like plan and that is, you know, what do I eat for breakfast? Should I bring my running shoes? When will I find the time to do that? Or exactly. is there a yoga studio? Blah, 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 blah. All these things. That's the main challenge. And that is, of course, the big drawback with having an incredibly routine-based lifestyle. And I, I'm a bit worried how I'm going to transition back into the real world where I can't set my own schedule 100%. Yeah, and I think... I th- we're just we're such suckers and this is going to your type A personality issue is that we're such suckers to achieve and be the best that we sacrif- we will sacrifice our bodies and minds in order to be quote unquote successful in this industry and the the thing that you have to say is no one's going to remember the amazing you know sentence you wrote and that third brief and that case if you're not if you're not alive <laughs> to, to talk yeah, about it. Right. So like, you know, I think we get really, we get really heated on, and you know, this podcast is something that to me is a wellness thing. It's something that I enjoy. It's something that's like off and I make time for myself and I don't, and I, and I don't um, compromise on it. And I say, you know, this is something that I want to do for myself. Yeah. It's therapy is what it is. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about mental health or anything like that. And Oh shit. That's right. But stupid of us just focusing on that. That maybe then we have another happy fun time, which is yeah. the exact opposite of happy fun time. <laughs> but I can say that stress 
can kill you. And stress gave me a rash for three months during law school. I had no idea what it was until I had acupuncture and it automatically alleviated After I took months and months of treatment of antibiotics, it just found out from this Eastern European doctor in LA that I was just stressed. And it, hey, I don't know what to tell you. I had a rash for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't go I, don't, I don't know your experience. I'm not gonna, <laughs> but I'm gonna anyway. And I'm gonna say that's bullshit, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but stress can come out in the weirdest ways and it can make your eyesight blur. It can it can do so many things. So just manage it. Yeah, take care of yourself, people. Amen, Joel. Gosh, when is our retreat? Are we gonna have a silent retreat? Uh, once again, that's my everyday. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. You're gonna go to a speaking retreat. Oh yeah. Social retreat. I hate that, but I'm going to California for a few weeks in April, so. I'll I'm give you the, name, the number of my acupuncturist. But you should seriously give me. Uh, are we still on the air, by the way? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I thought we ended it there. I was going to ask you to give me a few restaurant tips uh, in yeah. uh, in Venice. <laughs> All right. Until next episode, we are the Arbitration Station. Follow us at the Arb Station on Twitter and email us at the Arbitration Station at gmail dot com. That's how we know when the episode has ended. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>